Welcome to part two of this ECS Publishing Group podcast discussing the life and work of Paul Mons with Scott Hisler. Scott literally wrote the book on Paul Mons, and we're delighted to continue our conversation today with him. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you can find it on our ECS Publishing Group podcast page. In that episode, we discussed Paul Mons's upbringing in the Lutheran Church and the various influences of his many teachers. This episode begins where we left off, as Paul Mons finishes his studies in Europe and returns home to the United States. So then he comes back and he goes back to Mount Olive. And my understanding is that he really saw himself as a an organist playing the literature. He loved to play Franck. He loved to play the literature. And so he set up the concerts that were like Sunday afternoon concerts yeah. at Mount Olive. And that he would begin and end with a hymn. Yes. And that he would then improvise or expand that hymn into uh, something bigger. But that became so popular that he started doing those. And that kind of what laid the foundation for the hymn festival. Correct. Uh, And you can't go back and put a date on it exactly. But I know that I've seen some things that kind of reference like 1964, 62, in there. Is that kind of how you remember it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, discussing this with Paul, I mean, he would say, you know, his first experiences with a hymn festival were when he was in college and the the hymn society in the United States would have maybe a, a hymn festival either in the city of Chicago or up in Evanston or something. And Paul would attend and it would be a loosely constructed thing, basically just a bunch of hymns that people like to sing. And uh, a program was made out of mm-hmm. that. I think Mons's spin on it was to put, and now here, I think I'm safe saying, I think this is a Paul and Ruth moment. As you said, and you're absolutely correct, that it began with his recitals that he would play, and then people really enjoyed singing the hymns and what he was doing with the hymns. And then he decided to, well, let's just try a whole program of hymns. But it wasn't just a, a program of random hymns. It was all brought together under one thematic umbrella. And then Ruth, I do know, would pull different readings to intersperse between mm-hmm. uh, the hymns to give it all a theological context um, to put everything uh, into in that. And obviously, it was very successful right. and remains successful to this day. Yeah. So this next question, we could probably spend a whole podcast on, <laughs> but we won't. But out of that, what do you see as some of the characteristics of a Mons hymn festival and then maybe a Mons improvisation? What were some of the things that you think were unique for the time that we now maybe take for granted? 
Yeah, I think we do take it for granted now. I think at the time, again, you know, uh, Ruth's influence in terms of the whole structure, the architecture that the hymns were placed into, um, the readings that were chosen were more often than not readings by contemporary theologians and uh, and writers. Certainly, many things pulled from classics and that, but um, a lot of work done with people who were the thinkers and movers of that time mm-hmm. and that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that was definitely a hallmark of it. Paul's music always sounds fresh, at least to my ears. Mm-hmm. I find it exceptionally remarkable um, that, uh, you know, some of the recordings you were just playing for me a little bit ago, it's as fresh right now as I'm sure it was whenever it was first, when it was mm-hmm. first played. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that you know, Paul had, a uh, again, the very disciplined uh, structure of the French improvisation school um, with a mightily fertile imagination. And, you know, Paul was also um, pretty well grounded. You know, I uh, made the comment before about being a piano player in a bar, but, you know, he did do a turn playing piano in a jazz band when he was in college. Mm -hmm. And at one point he had been asked if he would go on the road with him. You know, he was asked to leave college and to, you know, be a gigging musician uh, with the band, which thankfully he chose not to. (laughs) Um, But I think that that acknowledgement and exposure to the best of the popular music of that time also also comes into influences. Yes, I mean, I think you can go through and find so many jazz influences yeah. in what he did, and hidden within classical structures. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was like, I like this. I'm going to incorporate it yeah. somewhere into what I feel and so, do. Some, and, some of it is jazz, but some of it is also the, the rhythmic chorale that um, he grew up with. And many people yeah. have characterized the, the rhythms of rhythmic chorales as being jazzy um, and that because of the syncopations that are used throughout. And I think that that probably had as much uh, uh, an influence. You know, I think his tonal vocabulary put in with the rhythms of the rhythmic chorale and that give it that sense of what we would call jazz mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that. But uh, And he also just... Um, you know, what may, if you try playing his music literally off the page, it can be very difficult because there are a lot of um, non-harmonic tones that he employs throughout the writings and that, and they don't always function the way that, you know... Well, you think about that, what was going on in composition oh, on the yeah. academic level yeah. at this time, and it was actually much more adventuresome harmonically than we are experiencing today, yeah. and yeah, beyond yeah. it. And so I think you could hear him toying with some of that at, from time to time saying, I understand this, I can do this, I'm putting this in. But he always did it in such a tasteful kind of yes, interesting way that he had this way of bridging tradition and newness at yeah, I think he very much understood, you know, you could sit there and you could do something that would be well-respected in academic circles, but if the people in the pews didn't respond to it, you had missed the point. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, he, he was he was quite the genius uh, yeah. at bridging those gaps. I think um, I, at one point, worked with a pastor who had a great saying that stu- has stuck with me throughout the years, uh, and that was that in every worship service that you needed to have home and you needed to have journey, and that if you never went on the journey, you're, you never grew. But if you only stayed home, you never went anywhere. And yeah. that I think that Paul did that not only in every one of his hymn festivals, in that he introduced new material to people in ways, 
but he also did it with traditional hymns. So when he would start that introduction, you might not know where he was going. You'd hear some original material, and then it would just all of a sudden turn into the the tune, and you'd know exactly where he Absolutely. was going. Absolutely. I mean, he was adamant about the fact that the tune, the melody, was the property of the congregation, and you had no business tampering with that. Mm-hmm. So whether you were introducing it or whether you were playing it for the congregation, you could do whatever you wanted underneath it, but it had better be supporting that melody mm-hmm. so you didn't throw the congregation off whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there there's a fairly significant archive of the many, many different hymn festivals that he's done over the year that is shared between Concordia University in St. Paul and the Center for Church Music in Chicago. And so hopefully some of those are going to get up online where people can actually hear these uh, these hymn festivals that he would play over time. But one of the things that's very interesting when you listen to those hymn festivals is how serious he took involving that congregation's tradition in what he did and using the musicians that he had. So you might get some really strange combinations. I think you mentioned yesterday there was one for oboe and brass, brass quartet. quartet. Yeah, yeah, the the church's one foundation, yes. And, and that was one that was uh, uh, commissioned from him uh, by Grace Lutheran Church out in Boulder, Colorado, which was the church that they would attend when they were out in their cabin in Colorado. And um, it, it was such an odd combination of things. And I remember asking him once, why did you do that? I mean, and I was expecting this this uh, philosophical dissertation from Paul about, you know, wanting to expand horizons or whatever. And he just said, well, that's what they had available. <laughs> I mean, it was that practical. Yeah. Yeah, so you could hear that throughout the hymn festivals in that he would assess what they had and he would use it to its fullest and would incorporate it and do a beautiful job with it. Well, I, I even remember the first hymn festival I did with Paul when I was serving a parish in Chicago and we had Paul come over to do a hymn festival and the way it was negotiated was he said, I want you to send me a list of you know, 12 to 15 hymns that your congregation knows well. And then I'll take those and I'll add, and you know we had decided on what the umbrella that these would be under was, and I'll I'll choose um, some other things to put in there. But I want to make sure that we're doing things that your people want to sing and know and so forth. Yeah. So it was it was great fun working with him on those things. Another thing that I think that pops out to me in listening to those hymn festivals is the energy. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, the word. Even all the way to the very end, the very last hymn festival I've heard him play, there was such energy in what he did. And he would build moments that you were so energetic and then follow it by something that was just so serene and quiet and still. And you would do this journey through the hymn festival yeah. of emotionally... Yeah, he knew way. how it should ebb and flow. I mean, he he really had a good feeling for that. I've always enjoyed... John Ferguson has the phrase where he refers to Paul Mons had a charisma at the organ bench unlike mm-hmm. anyone else, and I think that's a brilliant use of the word. Yeah, yeah. And true. Well, let's talk for a few minutes about some of the very important pieces that are in his legacy and some of the things that he did. Let's first of all talk about Ean So Lord Jesus Quickly Come for just a minute. So talk about the story briefly. 
Well, um, the story was that there's, uh, the Mansa's second son, John, was um, extremely ill, and I believe it was either rheumatic fever or some, something along those lines, which back in the 1960s was not as easily remedied as it may be today. And it had developed into pneumonia, and John was in the hospital as a three-year-old um, and uh, truly was struggling for his life. And at, at one point, the doctors had come to Paul and Ruth. Paul and Ruth had been keeping 24 for our vigils with their son each, each taking shifts and uh, the doctors had basically said this is now in God's hands and um, so Ruth knew she needed to keep Paul busy so Ruth put together the text that we all know is in so Lord Jesus quickly come and gave it to Paul and said here why don't you see what you can do with this and so Paul sat at John's bedside and did a, a rough draft of this piece that we all know and adore now and when when uh, when he had he finished the piece, John recovered. Um, you know, is still with us and doing great. And uh, Paul took the piece, and as as he said it, oh, I just put it, I just tossed yeah, it in a drawer, it in, a drawer. In, in our living room and forgot about it. And then you know came back across it sometime later and said, well, I think I'll I'll see if I can dust this up and come up with something. And actually, I think I heard him in an interview say that one of the first things he had to do with Floor Paters was to bring in a motet. Oh. And that he took that out of the drawer that he had kind of done, and he decided he better work on something, and that he worked it up, and that was one of the first things that he showed to Floor. Oh, for heaven's sake. So whether, you know, this may be one of those recollections that is off by a little bit, or I don't know, but it was certainly part of that, that whole tradition. Well, but now it's been sung all over the world, and, and in many different formats. It's been orchestrated into different uh, yeah. uh, things. And how many copies has it sold? Oh, I wish I knew. But uh, over a million. over a million. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, all of us that dabble in church music wish you could have one. You know, right. In solar right. Jesus. Yeah. So that was one of the choral pieces. He had several, but a lot of the choral pieces were very practical for his use. He would write something he loved to do Christmas Eve with children and adults. Yeah. And that antiphonal carol came out of that. And he had a little Sussex carol setting that yeah. we've just published, actually, that grew out of those kinds of experiences. I think the thing that he's also known for so much are the hymn improvisations. And I think that there's a whole another session as well about the recordings that came into existence yeah. at that time because they influenced people so greatly. Talk a little about the recordings and what you remember, and I can add probably some things sure. I know as well. Uh, the recordings, uh, I think it was a brilliant move. Um, Rodney Schrank, mm-hmm. who was at that time editor at Concordia Publishing House, um, Paul had been publishing his organ improvisations. And the question I have that I've, I've never had the opportunity to have answer is, 
did the recordings come because they were such great music, or was there a call for it because people didn't know necessarily how to render them? Right. I th- my understanding, and from what I've heard on uh, some of these, is that Rod had heard Paul doing his improvisations and asked for the recordings prior to the music being written down. Yeah. And that they actually had to record it in the middle of the night yeah. at Mount Olive and the, you know... To two the, two the, busy streets yeah, by it. And and so that they could traffic. get them done. And that Paul would do the first take and then they went up to say, okay, now do that again. And he's like, oh, oh I have to do it again. So <laughs> he didn't ever play things together the same way correct, twice. Correct. So it was not written down and that then it was not until after the recordings were done that the improvisations were starting to be written down. Um, that's the way I think I understand that it actually happened. Yeah, well, at some point, Rodney obviously had the really brilliant idea to turn these into commercial recordings. Yes. And I'm one of those people that, as a young uh, high schooler, had the complete set of the CPH LPs, and mm-hmm. then I think I still have them. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, well, you uh, can buy them on CD now. I have many copies <laughs> of the CDs and even a few And they also are on stre- <laughs> they're also on streaming on Spotify and I, Apple Music. I and, have heard uh, them on Spotify. Spotify. So, you know, you find them everywhere. And those are, again, you know, those were essentially live performances by Paul Mons. And they're exciting to listen yeah, to. They are. They're um, very, very fresh. And, and, you know, I think part of that, too, and we have to make mention of the fact that um, shortly after Paul came back from his studies with um, uh, Peters in Belgium and Valka in Germany, that uh, uh, he also realized the organ they had at uh, Mount Olive was really no longer... Adequate. Adequate, yeah. And uh, was replaced by the instrument that's still there today, that splendid Schlicker instrument from the mid-1960s and that. And the way Paul would refer to that instrument is it it fit him like a glove. You know, Mm -hmm. it was his artist palette to work Mm -hmm. from. And, you know, Paul would come up with the craziest um, registrations for things. I mean, things that nobody would ever consider doing, but they worked, and they yeah. were they were they were just brilliant. Yeah. So uh, another one of the stories, great stories about Paul, surrounds the Saint Anne Partita. Oh yeah, at Valparaiso University, and this was like when people were first getting to know Paul after he had come back. And this was kind of in that period where he really was hesitant to play in front of people. Because he didn't want he didn't want his teachers that had known him to think that he had turned his back on them. Yeah. But there was this event at uh, Valparaiso. Yeah. In which they ask him to improvise on uh, "Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past." Yeah. So. I, well, I, I don't think he was asked to do that. What it was was, as my understanding is, is um, this was one of the early um, institute, yeah, 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 liturgical institutes at Valparaiso, and um, uh, Michael Schneider was the guest organist and clinician, and was doing a workshop on improvisation. And they had asked an, uh, several um, established organists, uh, Greg Fountain from Northwestern, uh, Paul Mons, and I can't remember Phil Gehring, Phil Gehring, sure from Valpo. Um, were, were asked to all do examples of improvisation. And uh, when Paul was called on, you know, he sat down, he t- asked people to turn to whatever page, oh God, our help in ages past was in TLH, and uh, took off and uh, laid out his improvisation.
And uh, the uh, I can't remember who it was, but somebody I'm I'm told again uh, literally climbed over the pews <laughs> to to uh, shake Paul's hand when it was all finished and done with. And it says here it was Alfred Bixel. Yeah, Bixel. Yeah. Okay. From Eastman. Yeah, uh, Bixel had been at um, uh, Valparaiso uh, originally and then had moved to Eastman to start their sacred um, school of music. But yes, yeah, Bixel had uh, uh, stepped over the pews in that to thank Mm -hmm. Paul and then Mm -hmm. uh, a a really wondrous moment. And I think, again, this is where the whole notion of French improvisation goes versus maybe a misunderstanding of improvisation because I've had people say to me um, trying to disrespect that moment by saying, well, we heard him play that before. It wasn't really improvised. It's like, well, now hold it. Uh, you know, du- Dupre du- du- was Dupre. practicing his improvisation. Well, Dupre practiced his, but Dupre performed his improvisations yeah. numerous times. Yeah. And it was much like mine. They were always different yeah. depending on the palette you had to work with. So another piece I want to talk about for a moment before we close this um this podcast is um, the aria because that's one that kind of came about later and that he played all over the country yeah. uh, in many different things. And it was featured has been in two of the presidential funerals. I know I heard it at Reagan's funeral. I was sitting in an airport watching it and I'm watching them seat the presidents. And I'm thinking, I recognize that melody. What yeah. is that? And then I went, Oh, Paul Mons. Yeah, Eric William Souter was the, the organist at the cathedral at yeah. that time, and he played yeah. that. So yes. what is it about that aria that seems to be... It's 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 a ravishing melody. I mean, it's just good music. It's beautiful. It it has a logical structure to it, an ABA sort of format to it. And it was a piece that, before Paul put it down on paper, he had improvised on many, many times. Um, it was usually his offertory piece or his voluntary at the hymn festivals. And uh, uh, I believe, I, and shoot, um, do you recall who it was dedicated to? No, I... I don't. Uh, it was a colleague of Paul's at uh, the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're probably their first IT person. And um, <laughs> Paul, Paul Paul loved technology in whatever shape or form it was in. And Paul was one of the early people on the bandwagon with Finale. And um, I believe the aria might be the first piece that uh, he put down that he put on. In, into Finale. And because this gentleman from LSTC had helped get him all set up, he had quite the setup for complete with a pedal board and the whole thing. Mm. So he was able to yeah. go direct from keyboard to computer with, yeah. his, with his stuff. And yeah. um, any other pieces that you just think you'd want to call special attention to? Oh, man. You know, <laughs> the, the funny thing about that question, it would be interesting to ask 10 different organists yes. that question because you'd get 10 different lists. Yeah. And, you know, certainly my background within the Missouri Synod gives me a core repertoire of hymns that I identify come very much so with Mons's improvisations. And uh, and then there were some of the later things where he was definitely um, stepping out on different limbs right, right. And, and that. And some of that never wound up in print, which is a shame. But, uh, you know, certainly the, the prelude on God of grace and God of glory, mm-hmm. um, his prelude on uh, Zelem Breudigam, uh, Jesus. Jesus lead thou on, which was his first published piece, first mm-hmm. published organ piece of, of, of music. And, you know, that was well over 50 years ago, and it still just wears yeah. incredibly yeah. well in the years. I agree. Well, I think we could go on and on about Paul's life and work, but um, we probably should draw this to a close. If you want to know more about the life and work of Paul Mons, I'd suggest that you read Scott's wonderful book entitled The Journey Was Chosen. So, Scott, thanks again for taking time to visit with us. Thank you. And as always, thank you for listening.